Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful day. Thank you that we now have a continued opportunity to study these important themes and prepare our lives to be of useful service for you and your cause. Please help us to know how to do your work your way. Help us to be Christ-like, not in only our message, but our method as well, so we can be like Jesus and share Jesus with the world. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start with, uh, let's go down to Christ Object Lesson. Now, this one is not on the screen, so you're going to have to use your um, minds <laughs> and your pens and papers if you want to take notes here. But Christ Object Lessons, page 143. You might be aware, uh, this is a very famous quote. Christ's method, what's the next word? Alone will bring what kind of success? Which implies that there is such a thing as false success. But true success, right? In reaching the people. The Savior, and this is what she means by that. The Savior mingled with men as one who desired their good. He showed sympathy for them ministered to their needs, and won their confidence. Then he bade them, follow me. Again, this is exactly what we've been talking about. Soil preparation, and then follow me. The personal testimony, the leading to the spiritual things, right? Now, most of the time when we hear that quote, we stop right there. She goes on to say, if you were to continue reading, which, by the way, most Bible Apparent Bible contradictions or difficulties with the Word of God or the Spirit of Prophecy can be resolved with that simple little premise, just keep reading. A lot of our issues is we'll take something out of context and make that the thing instead of looking at the broader context. But as we look at the context of this statement, she goes on to explain that there is need of coming close to the people by personal effort. If less time were given to sermonizing and more time were spent in personal ministry, greater results would be seen. Then she goes on to say, what is that personal work supposed to look like? The poor are to be relieved, the sick cared for, the sorrowing and the bereaved comforted, the ignorant instructed, the inexperienced counseled. We are to weep with those that weep and rejoice with those that rejoice. Accompanied by the power of persuasion, the power of prayer, the power of the love of God, this work will not, cannot be without fail, without fruit, right? So we're to weep with those who weep. We're to come close to them, have a friendship, actual bond with people, demonstrate. Um, I like to, well, well, we'll say that for a minute, but this is that work of preparing the soil of the heart. They need to know you, that you're a trustworthy, responsible, spiritual person that in time of need, that's where they can turn. Okay. Um, now, how do we do that? Well, we do it through practical ministry. It demonstrates our connection to Christ, and it softens the heart to receive the truth. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, the apostle Peter summed up the ministry of Jesus in one sentence. Take a look in your Bible. Check this out. In Acts chapter 10, you know the apostle Peter was sent kicking and screaming to go share the word with a Gentile, Cornelius, but... He at least obeyed when the Lord told him to three or four times. But in Acts chapter 10, he meets with Cornelius and he explains to Cornelius who Jesus was. Now, Peter has been with Jesus for three and a half years. He's seen all of the miracles. He's heard all of the teaching. He's witnessed the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, everything. So he's going to try to boil all of that down, the whole ministry of Jesus Christ, into one sentence. 
Acts chapter 10, verse 38. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing what? Good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. He said Jesus was a guy who went around doing good, healing people, because God was with him. That's how Peter summed up the life of Jesus. That's pretty interesting. And I believe that, well, this is, how do I put this? Mrs. White gives us a little insight into his childhood and uh, young adult phase of life before his public ministry began. There's not much said in the Bible about that time of his life, and Mrs. White gives us a little added insight. But I found this particularly fascinating. You can find this in the Desire of Ages, page 92. So this is not some obscure source. It's something probably everyone has on their shelves. But listen to this. And this is describing the time of his life before his public ministry began. She said this, Jesus was the healer of the body as well as of the soul. Now, I'm not saying that Jesus was out there raising the dead and, you know, curing the lame and this kind of stuff, but she says he was the healer of the body as well as of the soul. He was interested in every phase of suffering that came under his notice, and to every sufferer he brought relief, his kind words having a soothing balm. None could say that he had worked a miracle. Right? So he's out there just like giving the blind sight, that kind of thing. But virtue, the healing power of love, went out from him to the sick and distressed. Thus, now listen very carefully, these last two sentences. Thus, in an unobtrusive way, he worked for the people from his very childhood. Have you ever imagined what was Jesus doing up until the age 30? Sure, he was working his father's carpenter shop and being an obedient, dutiful son to his mother when his father passed away and all those things. But he was also practicing and laying the groundwork. He was preparing the soil for when he would be the word of God preached out loud, right? And he was doing it how? By practical, loving, caring, personal ministry. Watch this. Now, I didn't make this up. It's right there. Let me read these last two sentences. Thus, in an unobtrusive way, he worked for the people from his very childhood. Here's the point. And this was why, after his public ministry began, so many heard him gladly. You're like, I just thought he came out of the blue, like John the Baptist, and started preaching and had to. No, no. He had laid the groundwork for years through personal contact, making a network of friends. And then when he comes, they know him, they can trust him, and they're ready to receive the word. Christ was a master soil preparer. We need to do the same thing. Um, And, of course, we'll get into, I'll skip that for now. (laughs) But over and over, and I'm going to repeat this in in some of the meetings we have coming up. In fact, the next morning, I think tomorrow morning, I'll just tell you, don't worry about today, let's come to tomorrow morning. But Jesus' good works are repeatedly given as the evidence that he is who he says he is. Okay? We can just think about it very quickly. Um, When the enemies of Jesus, the Jews, came up and, wanted to accuse him of blasphemy. He says, hey, well, for what good work do you stone me? They say, for no good work, but for blasphemy. And he says, you can find that in John chapter 10. He says, if I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me. 
and I in him. He said, the good works that I do are the evidence of my connection with the divine. Okay? This happened when his own disciples asked, Lord, show us the Father. And he said, well, have I been with you this time? You can say that. And then he adds this, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sakes of the works themselves. And when John the Baptist, this one had to hurt the most of all, John the Baptist, when he was in prison, sent a couple of people to ask, are you the one or do we look for another? And you know what answer Jesus gave? He didn't say a word. From that hour, he healed many of their diseases and he basically showed them these good beneficent works. And then he says, now go tell John what you've seen and heard today. And basically, those works are the outline of Isaiah 61, right? He was demonstrating that the good works are the evidence of divinity. In the same way that Jesus' good works are the evidence of his relation to, the, to God, our good works are the evidence of our relationship to Jesus. Our good works demonstrate our connection with Jesus. Now listen to this. Let's go to, uh, we, of course, we can go to, I can give you scriptures like uh, 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 Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your what? Good works and glorify your Father in heaven. They need to see something in you so that when you say something, it has credibility. Right? And I'll just make this point. Good works give our message credibility. And our message gives good works its significance. Okay? I'm working on how to say that more clearly so more people can agree when they hear it, right? I'm going to try. <laughs> I'm working on this one, okay? But good works give credibility to our message. And our message gives significance to our good works. So when we come in with a message, it's underscored by the fact that we've got a foundation laid already. It's an important preparatory tool to go forward and, and to have those relationships. Evangelism 5.17 puts it this way. Many have lost the sense of eternal realities, lost the similitude of God, and they hardly know whether they have souls to be saved or not. They don't even know if they're people anymore. They have neither faith in God nor confidence in man. I don't know if you've ever met people like this. I don't know if there is a God. My prayers aren't answered. My people, there's a lot of discouraged, despair-riddled people out there. They have neither faith in God nor confidence in man. As they see one with no inducement of earthly praise or compensation come into their wretched homes. When you go to meet these people, you're not doing it because you're getting paid. You're not doing it because you're going to get your name on the side of a billboard or something like that. You're just doing it because you have the love of God and you want to help. Right? As they see one with no inducement of earthly praise or compensation, come into their wretched homes, ministering to the sick, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, and tenderly pointing all to him of whose love and pity the human worker is but the messenger, as they see this, their hearts are touched. Gratitude springs up. Faith is kindled. They see that God cares for them, and they are prepared to listen as his word is opened powerful thought. They actually want to see who you are before they hear what you have to say. 
And that gives the message credibility. Do you see what I'm saying? That the good works, there's a reason it's called the entering wedge. When we, and it used to be called, we call it medical missionary work. Okay? But it's not just like Loma Linda and heart bypasses and all this kind of stuff. It's like giving bread to your neighbor, helping them out in time of trouble, you know, shoveling the lawn. What, I don't shovel the lawn. Why would you shovel the lawn? Shoveling the drive, <laughs> mowing the lawn, whatever it is you do with lawns and drives, whatever they need help with, right? Uh, there was a time in the Adventist church where they had, uh, right here in, 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 um, in Michigan, there was such a thing, John Harvey Kellogg started up, Christian, uh, what was it, missionary, oh, what was the word, help bands, um, Christian help bands or something like that. Basically, they would have roaming do-gooders running around the neighborhood, do you need any help? Can I stack some wood? Can I take out the track? Can I do, it was awesome. And they had Bible study interests come from it. Young people got involved. They were just out there helping people. You're the people that do good stuff. Yeah. Who is the guy? Jesus. That's who that reminds me of, right? It's great. Uh, Christian service, page 132. First, meet the temporal necessities of the needy and relieve their physical wants and sufferings, and you will then find an open avenue to the heart where you may plant the good seeds of virtue and religion. All right, pop quiz. I'm pretty sure this is correct, so I'll say it with authority. What is the passage of Scripture, the chapter of the Bible, that Mrs. White quotes most often in her writing? Who's the winner in the room? Back there? Who said Isaiah? Isaiah 58 is the right answer. Isaiah 58. Anybody know what's in Isaiah 58? And it's not just the turn your foot away from the Sabbath, right? That's the end of Isaiah 58. That whole juicy middle part there is what's most often referenced. Okay? Let me give you some statements on this. Um, oh, let's see here. Oh, we could break this down. Just, I would urge you to read Isaiah 58. The whole thing is not that long. But that's where it talks about giving your, uh, letting your, extending your soul to the hungry, giving your bread, uh, opening your homes for the homeless, all this kind of stuff, right? The practical good. Mrs. White repeatedly counsels, and by the way, I'm going through the spirit of prophecy text, not because I'm trying to put down the Bible, but when I say Isaiah, everybody's got your Bible in hand, but you don't know these statements, right? I'm trying to share with you what you don't have already. Uh, page 32 in the little book, Welfare Ministry. Believe it or not, there's a compilation called Welfare Ministry. Oftentimes we think, well, we're Seventh-day Adventists. Our job is to preach a message. That's for the Salvation Army to do. Friends, don't try to separate the gospel work from the medical missionary work. It needs to be integrated. It needs to go together. The practical preparation gives the significance to the message, gives it credibility. Okay? The work specified in these words, speaking of Isaiah 58, oh, I'm page 32 of the book Welfare Ministry, WM32. The work specified in these words, Isaiah 58, is the work God requires his people to do. It is a work of God's own appointment. Now listen, with the work of advocating the commandments of God and repairing the breach that has been made in the law of God, we are to mingle compassion for suffering humanity. As a people, we must take hold of this work. Love, here's where I got this idea, love revealed for suffering humanity gives significance and power to the truth. It's still true, even without it. But in their minds, it makes it significant. It's a powerful thought. Christian Service, page 139 and 140. I cannot too strongly urge all our church members, all who are true missionaries, all who believe the third angel's message, all who turn away their feet from the Sabbath, 
to consider the message of the 58th chapter of Isaiah. The work of beneficence enjoined in this chapter is the work that God requires his people to do at this time. Here's another one. Evangelism, page 516 and 517. The 58th chapter of Isaiah contains present truth for the people of God. Here we see how medical missionary work and the gospel ministry are to be bound together as the message is given to the world. Upon those who keep the Sabbath of the Lord is laid the responsibility of doing a work of mercy and benevolence. Medical missionary work is to be bound up with the message and sealed with the seal of God. Now, there are not many in existence today examples of where this practical medical missionary type of benevolent work is gone on full throttle at the same time as a very active personal ministry and public evangelism, right? The, the gospel ministry and the medical missionary often are not seen woven together. We're doing well if we have one or two little pieces of either one of those elements in most of our churches. There was a day and age, however, where at least one local church tried to follow this counsel. It happened way, way back in 1900-ish, 1900, 1901 to 1905, somewhere around there. And it happened in the town of, anybody know? Yes, who said it? Thank you, around Oakland and San Francisco, California, right in the Bay Area there, the Oakland and San Francisco churches, okay? Listen to this. Mrs. White described the innovative outreach initiatives the believers in San Francisco were actively doing. This is writing from her. This is from the Review and Herald, and then we're going to see from the Australia Union Conference record. But I want you to count how many different practical ministry things were going on in these, this location here. Sabbath morning, November 10, 1900. We entered the San Francisco church and found it crowded to its utmost capacity. During the past few years, the beehive, as she calls it, in San Francisco has been indeed a busy one. You ever heard of beehive churches? Well, theirs is a model. Churches are supposed to be busy as a beehive. Watch this. Here's what she describes going on in that local church. From Elder J.O. Corliss, who is pastor of the San Francisco church, we learn that there are many lines of Christian effort being carried forward by brethren and sisters in San Francisco. These include, and I think I've got counted out 14, and you see if you can get them, visiting the sick and destitute, finding homes for orphans, and work for the unemployed, nursing the sick, teaching the love of Christ from house to house, the distribution of literature, and the conducting of classes for healthful living and the care of the sick. A school for the children is conducted in the basement of the meeting house. In another part of the city, a working man's home. Anybody know what a working man's home equivalent would be today? It's a homeless shelter. A working man's home. And medical mission is maintained. On Market Street near the city hall, there is a bath establishment. What does that mean? Kind of, but in a, a very special kinds of baths, hydrotherapy, right? Hot water, cold water, uh, all the things that make you better when you have the flu. Mm-hmm. We had some natural, natural uh, remedy folks trying to cure me the, uh, a few months ago, and they know what I'm talking about here, okay? They had a bath establishment there, operated as a branch of the St. Helena Sanitarium. In the same locality is a depot of the health food company, where health foods are not only sold, but instruction is given as to reforms and diet. Nearer the center of the city, our people conduct a vegetarian cafe, which is open six days in the week 
and is entirely closed on the Sabbath. Here, about 500 meals are served daily. They were serving 500 meals a day at a vegetarian cafe in like 1900, 1901, whatever this was. We think, ooh, I'm going to come up with something new and shiny. We're going to open a vegetarian cafe. That's been done. It just hadn't been done well in 100 years. I'm preaching. Let's get back. And is entirely closed on the Sabbath. Here about, you go, anyway, you're not the five, and no flesh meats are used. Dr. and Mrs. Dr. Lamb are doing much medical work for the poor in connection with their regular practice. And Dr. Buchanan is doing much free work at the working man's home. So individual volunteers, they might be professionals in their, in their career of uh, uh, medical work or whatever, giving of their time and doing free labor on the side as that's their ministry. People can cook. They teach cooking classes. They have the vegetarian cafe. If they can teach, they teach kids. They go door to door. They have the working man's home, the orphanage, the, how to, the help for the unemployed. All these social things, and I'm not at all going to get political here, but somehow we've given over the care of those less fortunate to the government when it should be done by the Christ-like churches. Mm. Now, this is what I find fascinating, besides the 14 things we listed off here. Aside from the description of these incredible evangelistic enterprises, what is perhaps most astonishing is the lesson Ellen White drew from it all. When shown the prolific work of practical ministry being carried on, Mrs. White concluded in these words, we earnestly hope that the steps taken in the future in the work in San Francisco will be steps of progress. <laughs> Do you catch it? She's like, I hope they get better. The work that has been done there is but a beginning. If we heard any church report on all that stuff gone, we'd say, amen, you guys have reached the top. Mrs. White said, that's a good first step. What would it look like if our churches took hold and prepared the soil this thoroughly? And with that, had an equal commitment to presenting the truth to every one of those individuals. What impact could the Seventh-day Adventist Church have? Mm. This is reference, uh, you can find this in the Australian Union Conference Record of March 1, 1901. Uh, the Review and Herald of July 5, 1906. But it's all about the work in San Francisco. If you type in, if you little EG White app, just type in Beehive. That'll help you out. Yeah. Uh, Review and Herald, 19, uh, 1906. That's July 5, 1906. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Oh, mercy. Haven't even gotten to the next step yet. Oh, there's a whole thing about how to make your church into a beehive and what, oh, but we got to go. I don't, now I'm torn. I don't know what to do with you folks. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, this is just an example of all the outreach things they were doing to make a first impression on the people and meet their needs and then to bring it with the, with the word of God, right? Individual work. So what I'm saying is we have very uh, socially conscious churches that do outreach activities and stuff, but a lot of times that's just where they live. That's it. They till the soil and come back and till the soil and they just do that over and over and over with no greater aim in mind. Mrs. White had a picture where it's not one or the other, it's doing all those aspects combined, and it creates a beehive of activity. Everybody has a place, everybody has a thing, and they're all contributing to the larger framework. Okay, that's what she had in mind. Um, I tell you what we'll do. We'll try to make a way that these notes could be distributed somehow, either electronically or something like that, so everybody can read through on your own pace. Does that make sense? All right, let's do that. Let's move on to our next one. <laughs> that was all just soil prep. Now let's go to sowing the seed of truth. 
If I were to sum this up in one sentence, it would be stolen from Nike. Just do it. When it comes to sowing the seed, do it. That's the bottom line. Okay? And we've I've got all the text in here that we went through on the slides. Um, uh, let's see here. Say it again. From. Okay. <laughs> all right, how do I go from nice to religion? That's the question we want to ask. All right, let's do that one. All right, let's focus on that a little bit. All right. Exactly. It's like, I, you, and I know you think I'm nice now, but now I'm going to talk about Jesus. So, <laughs> in order to effectively sow the seed of truth into the soil of the heart, we need to converse with people with the intention of moving the dialogue from the realm of daily life to matters of eternal importance. We can talk about the weather, but how do we get to Jesus, right? That's the leap we're talking about making. When it comes to speaking to people in any context, an important key to realize is that most people are most comfortable and most interested in talking about what? Themselves. People love them some them, right? They love them. And that's good. We have the same thing. But now we at least have a common place to start. Start with them. That's a good place to start. If you simply ask people about themselves, you'll quickly find that as a rule, they're more than happy to talk. Once you learn how to steer that self-interest, you can carry on a conversation almost indefinitely. And Mark and I have talked about this in a training video sometime. You can just say, just add one more question to the mix, and they'll go on with that a while and be thinking of your next question. All you have to do is one question. It's kind of like once a, once a uh, merry-go-round gets going, it's kind of pretty simple. You can have a carry, carry on a conversation all the time and talking all about them. That's fine. They're sharing, in fact. Um, and there's an experiment you can do. Just see how long you can keep a conversation going by up asking open-ended questions that they answer about themselves. But once you've gotten the hang of holding everyday conversations, which for some people, that's a big deal. In these conversations, we like to talk about how there's two big leaps. Number one, from being quiet to having a conversation at all. Some people don't know how to start even a secular conversation. They're just not people, people, okay? But then once you, all right, I got a friend now, we've got a co, whatever it is, we've got some sort of connection, we can talk, now how do we move that to the spiritual, okay? So, once you've gotten the hang of holding everyday conversations, the next step is to transition those conversations towards spiritual matters. This is where the acronym FORT, F-O-R-T, will be very helpful to keep in mind. You've probably heard that somewhere before. It stands for, do we have a, a scholar in the room who'd like to share what Fort stands There you go, right? So in that personal question time, when you're asking about them, you're talking about things that aren't necessarily uh, uh, vulnerable things, but things that are a little more revealing about their family, about their occupation, right? And you keep the level that way. But you're trending towards religion. Now, um, uh, let's see. Where can we jump? Let's just jump straight to soil samples, okay? We get the idea of FORT. What you want to do is basically progress, and this is not all done. By the way, the FORT acronym, Family, Occupation, Religion, and Testimony, is not necessarily or even oftentimes ever done in a single conversation. You're not going to be like, oh, that's for your family. Now tell me about your job. Neat. So you work as a contractor. What religion are you? Right? You don't do it in a mechanical kind of awkward, like cult-like way. Thank you for sharing this. Now let me give you my testimony. What you want to do is try to take that as a basic framework for a conversation or conversations over time, right? But that's the trend of it, is going from family all the way to the testimony. Now, once you've established a rapport with someone 
and built a relationship where you're comfortable discussing everyday things, how can you know when it's time to start interjecting and sowing little seeds of truth? How do you transition from the secular to the spiritual? Now, on rare occasions, people may make that decision easy because they'll just come out and ask you a spiritual or religious question. That's awesome if they do. It's taking all the burden off of you. Hey, you go to church on a weird day. I'm so glad you asked because I didn't know how to bring it up. <laughs> but you did, you know. They might, or you, I noticed you never eat the whatever, the, you know, they might just note, and they might ask, well, I'm so glad you asked. Let me share. This is why. And if they're close enough to ask, then they're close enough to hear your answer. That's not a problem. They're going to be offended, so give them the real answer they're looking for. No problem. Um, you know, but most of the time, people aren't going to outright ask you to talk about spiritual or religious things. They may be thinking about them or have questions in the back of their mind, but personal religious beliefs or concerns aren't typically things people talk about uninvited. In such situations, it's a good idea to sample the soil of the heart by throwing out a few test seeds into the conversation and just watch for their reaction. There's a myriad of ways to do this, but here's just one quick example. If someone mentions something about uh, how weird weather seems lately, or how intense natural disasters have been in recent years, or how fearful they are about the economy, or the wars, or the upcoming elections, and I've never seen things like this in the world, like we're seeing now, that seems to be some evidence that there might be some uncertainty about the future, some interest in bigger than everyday conversation type things, right? So this might be a good time to drop in an old-fashioned, you know, I've been studying or at my church, they've been holding a course on Bible prophecy and the very things you're talking about, these natural disasters and the failing economies and the wars and all this, that's actually in the Bible. I'd love to show you sometime. Would you like to see? It's the coolest thing. It was just last week. I'd like to share it with you. And if they're already interested, they might be interested and know what the Bible says, right? Now, they might shut you down and say, no, no, no. But odds are they say, oh, okay, that's cool. What is it? Now you've got an opening. Start there. Um, let's see here. Uh, let's see. Uh, there's just so much to say. Uh, test seeds don't even have to be that obvious. Try mentioning how something you are talking about reminds you of something I read in my Bible this morning. Just kind of throw that out there. Or uh, something I learned in my daily devotions. They don't have daily devotions. They don't even know what that means. They're going to say, what? You say, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> to just throw a little thing out there. Say, you know, this, that reminds me, I was listening in, in church this week, or even better, last Sabbath. You don't have to go into a whole study about it, but just drop the word in and see if they respond. Like, huh? Oh, oh yeah, I'm, I go to church. Yeah, I'm glad you asked. I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. And, and then you just share with them just very quickly. You know, we take the Bible as the word of God, and nowhere in there do we say that, is to say that Sunday is to be kept, but the seventh day is to be kept, so we just do it. Cool. You're not trying to browbeat and bend them into it, but you're trying to expose them to Bible truth in a very organic, kind of natural way. Okay? Um, let's just give some examples here. If they just move on, you move on too, but they, if they ask, be ready to give a good answer. Uh, here's some other chess seeds, just making stuff up here. Uh, you could make a biblical reference at the appropriate time of work. Um, 
If something miraculous or some astonishing thing happens, man, that was like Moses crossing the Red Sea. They might ask. There's your chance. Um, uh, let's see here. Uh, if someone brings up something they heard in church, be sure not to mention something interesting from our. Uh, be sure to mention something interesting from our Sabbath school class that you learned at our church last Sabbath. Um, don't just talk about something that happened at your church last weekend because they think you mean Sunday, and you'll miss a golden opportunity to get them thinking. If nothing else, just interject. Praise the Lord when something goes well. They know you're a Christian. They know you're a believer. And if they don't like it, they're not going to respond. But if they do, they're going to say, oh, something. Um, when sowing test seeds to sample the soil of the heart, don't be discouraged that they don't immediately respond with genuine interest or straightforward questions. They, you might not go from praise the Lord to like, oh, what does your church believe? But you've laid a foundation, and you're trying to walk them closer and closer. Um, it will most likely take some time before they feel comfortable taking the bait and going down the path toward more spiritual conversation. However, in the meantime, you just keep laying that consistent foundation of Christ's life and Christ's Christian life and conversation that will inevitably leave an impression and, by God's grace, lead to deeper dialogue about the most important issues of life. <laughs> well, and, and that's what I'm saying. He may closed-minded Christians are not that you know rare. And the other thing is that, and I'm sure you're going to get into this when you get into you know categorizing the interests, right? But one of the challenges I've seen in my own life and I've seen in my own ministry is that you'll say, all right, we're going to win a soul. And people are like, amen. And then you pull out an interest list, right? Who are you going to? And when they say win a soul, they're thinking of my mom or dad or my coworker, this person. So they've got their mindset, I'm going to win this one. Without any thinking of, are they even at a place to be won? Are they, are they ripe? Are they not? And so what we do is often pick the target without even looking or preparing the soil. And that leads to frustration. You say, oh, it doesn't work, that kind of thing. They've got you studying together. I was going to say that's a great resource there if you're dealing with different religions. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And again, that goes back to the idea that whether there's Baptists or Pentecostals or Nazarene or Catholic or whatever, we're not trying to get them churched. We're trying to make them part of the remnant people of God. And so we have a mission to them as well. And that's a great resource for saying what are their strengths, what are their opennesses, and that kind of thing. So I recommend it. Yes, sir. Okay. I think that sounds great if it works. I mean, because what we're looking for is any way to move the conversation towards the spiritual realities of life and an openness to God's word. So if there's a way that you've observed them being open or something or have a need in their life and there's an approach that you can have, and especially if you have, a, I'm guessing you and your friend, if he's close, to make, close enough to make fun of your diet calling it rabbit food, you should be able to be close enough to say, like, you know, whatever the counter to that would be. Like, you could have a rapport where you could actually interject those in a, in a friendship kind of way. And so I would, all right. I tell you what, let's close down with a word of prayer, then it's time to dismiss for the evening, okay? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you've entrusted to us in your infinite wisdom the plan of salvation and the message of your three angels, your last warning to the world. Lord, equip us, train us, prepare us to be your messengers of this good news. Lord, we want to see the gospel given to the world in this generation. We don't want to wait for another generation, hope that someday in the future, Lord, make us your servants even now. So bless us as we leave this place. Keep us safe physically. Keep us faithful and make us useful. We pray it in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio, and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.